Hello and welcome to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Oats for Breakfast is a podcast affiliated with The Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization in Toronto. I am your co-host, Sia. I'm Patrick. Um, and I also want to say that this podcast is being edited by Umer. Umer, I think people should know that you're editing the podcast. Yeah, they should know you're censoring everything. What you're <laughs> censoring, what you're not censoring. It should be, people should know who's doing the Stalinist retouchings. <laughs> brushing out people from the pictures and this and that. Disappearing thoughts and yeah, emotions. Yeah, exactly. Thoughts are disappearing from the ether. And they turn into a 30-minute podcast. Yeah. We talked to Jordan House, uh, who is an, a lecturer at Brock University in criminology, and he's also finishing up his dissertation on prison labor in Canada. And he's going to be speaking to us about this recent prison strike in um, Nova Scotia. It hasn't come up uh, in the news too frequently, but Jordan has recently written an essay for Jacobin magazine outlining um, why there's a prison strike in Nova Scotia. Uh, He also uh, details some of the principal differences between the Canadian and American prison systems in that essay. So should we cut to the interview? We should. Let's go. Very happy to be talking with Jordan House today. He's a scholar of the political economy of prisons. Hello, and thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. Big fan of the oh, podcast. Thank you. I think I'm one of the OG Patreon supporters. <laughs> That's right, so. you are. Um, so Jordan's going to talk to us about the political economy of prisons, but but you've had your own brush with the law, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're about to talk about this prison strike that happened at Burnside Jail in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Mm -hmm. uh, which I actually know quite well because of all the jails in the country is the only one where I have uh, involuntarily spent some time uh, in 2007. Oh, wow. I spent a weekend there after... You were very young. ...being arrested at a rowdy protest. Yeah, I was like 19 or something. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. it's, It's a bad place, and... It makes sense that people would go strike there. How long did you spend in prison? Or was it, is it prison or jail? It's jail. Right. It's a, you know, it's pre-trial detention. So okay. So it's like waiting for a bail hearing. Right. I was there for the weekend, mm-hmm. 24 hours in a police station, and then two days in the jail. And it's boring. It's, <laughs> it's scary. It's, you go through a, you know, ritual of humiliation. They strip search you. They, okay do all that and the guards are stupid they you know when we were doing our intake i was arrested with like 20 other people when we were doing our intake you know they were playing like uh welcome to the jungle (laughs) you know and just like really being theatrical which i thought was dumb did you talk to the other prisoners or inmates a bit we were in lockdown the whole time so it meant like two days alone in a single cell which is like very boring yeah that sounds a bit traumatic actually 
Yeah. Solitary confinement, is that what you were in? I guess. I wouldn't, I mean, it is. It would trivialize what people experience mm-hmm. um, to call what I did solitary confinement. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's like uh, locking yourself in a bathroom for two days. You know, very similar to that with like being let out one hour per day to make a phone call and... It's no spring picnic. No, it's not. It's not uh, fun and uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Not to take away the from the heaviness of the topic, but there's an episode of that 70s show where they try to import beer from Canada into the States, and uh, the border guard uh, stops them, and they go to Canadian uh, prison for a little bit. And predictably, uh, the Canadian prison is depicted as uh, very lax, and they all have goofy accents. I guess that's not what happened to you, though, Jordan. I mean, there are probably goofy accents, but... <laughs> But that's that's because they're a maritime. (laughs) But I think that's a good point because I think in Canadian popular imagination, as as much as the American popular imagination, Canadian prisons are seen as like far better. I I remember seeing a show on the Scandinavian model. Right. It seemed like vacation homes. And I think that's what people think about Canada as well. Yeah, not that Scandinavia doesn't have all of its own problems. Mm -hmm. But if we're looking at kind of a spectrum of more humane to least humane, we're on the least humane Canada's? Side. Oh. Yeah, of, of what prison looks like in in Western liberal democracies. Right. Uh, yeah, we have many problems, and it's pretty bad. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we get into that? Why is there a prison strike in Nova Scotia, and what's at issue, and what are the prisoners hoping to achieve? So between August 21st and September 9th of this year, Prisoners in several U.S. states engaged in coordinated strike efforts. And, and this is pretty similar to a, a nationwide prison strike that happened in the U.S. in 2016. Uh, but notable this time around was the fact that some prisoners in Canada joined. And so prisoners uh, at Burnside Jail, uh, which is in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, also struck. And in addition to the demands that were put forward by prisoners in the United States, uh, which result, re- revolved around uh, ending what people call prison slavery, which by that, by that they mean like uncompensated labor, uh, and an end to the over-sentencing of racialized people and the abolition of things like gang enhancement laws, alongside you know demands to just generally improve services and rehabilitation opportunities. Uh, the prisoners, the Canadian prisoners at Burnside uh, also issued their own demands, which were kind of similar but a bit different because of their uh, circumstances and contexts. And so they had a 10-point demand letter that included demands around better access to rehabilitation programming, access to exercise equipment, better health care, uh, things like improved food and air quality, improved visitation rights, and the ability to uh, wear personal shoes and clothing. Just so people know, Dartmouth is just outside of Halifax. Yeah, it's part of the greater regional municipality of Halifax. Okay, and so they were on strike. Did they achieve any? Did they achieve any of their demands? Um, no. Okay. In is the short answer. After 20 days on strike, the prisoners at Burnside declared uh, the strike over and issued a statement, which maybe we can actually link to in the notes to the show. Sure. But uh, basically saying that. They appreciated the support they got. They fought a good fight. The fight's not over, and they're going to continue to find ways to struggle for, for these improvements. But
but you know these things it's it's never easy to tell what's one or not one in the like really immediate term so why is that it's because it's hard to get information about sure i mean it's because some of these are like broader policy changes that can't be done overnight uh in other instances even when like improvements are made like say to food quality Mm. there's no guarantee that that's going to continue on in the long term so these things can be hard to measure and especially in the immediate sense and then you know that's combined with just the problem of prisons are opaque places mm-hmm. and it's difficult to get information in and out and so that means it takes a while it's going to take a while to figure out what was won generally across the kind of continent during this strike we're mm-hmm. going to be finding more information out about who struck and how they struck and what they maybe won or didn't for weeks or months to come so uh, in your frame your essay in uh, relation to what's happening in the U.S., because I think, at least for myself too, our conception of prisons is very shaped by the American media. Could you maybe go over briefly how the Canadian prison system is organized? There's two main kind of prison systems or two categories of prison system in Canada. There's a federal one and then provincial and territorial ones. And it's a very simple delineation, which is anybody who's sentenced to a sentence of two years less a day or less goes to provincial prison, which we, you know, often call jail. Mm -hmm. And more than two years is a federal sentence and goes to a federal facility. So that's the basic breakdown. So is Burnside a federal or provincial prison? It's a provincial. So it's short term people. And then so that also means not only people who have been sentenced to two years less a day or less, but also people uh, on remand who are like awaiting trial, like I was once upon a time. (laughs) Uh, Which means that there's, yeah, so when we talk about, and when I talk about um, the jail conditions in Canada, which are very bad, a lot of the people in jail, it should be remembered, are innocent. They have not yet been proven guilty, even if they're going to be. These are people who are legally innocent, and some of them will be declared legally innocent. And they face the exact same conditions as those people who are convicted. It's a very good point that I think a lot of us don't consider. I, from my understanding from watching TV, is that prisoners actually work in prisons. So, you know, why do prisoners work? Like, how did this come about? Basically, Canadian prisoners work uh, unless they don't. (laughs) And the reasons that they... Uh, might not is because they might be in other kinds of programming, uh, educational, other kinds of rehabilitation stuff that doesn't allow them enough time to work, or they are unemployed, which means that they actually would want work, but there's not enough work in a facility uh, for them to have a job. Okay. And then there's two main categories of work in prisons. There's institutional maintenance, which is all the stuff like you know cooking, cleaning, you know, clerical work, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases, maybe like kind of trades, people are plumbers assistant and, okay. that, and that kind of thing. And they're basically just keeping the, the yeah, all the things that running. you need to do to just like service a right. publicly run institution. Okay. And then the other category is prison industries. And so prison industries are programs that produce various goods and services that are sold either kind of to the prison itself and the prison system or outside of the prison. And so in Canada, there are, uh, there's one federal prison industry program called CORCAN. It's a special operating agency if people care about the structure of that. But it basically means that it has autonomy to kind of 
produce and sell goods, but, but it's still connected uh, to a ministry. And so Corcan has four business lines, manufacturing, textiles, construction, and services. So the services are like laundry services and printing mostly. And federal prisoners work doing various jobs related to those things. So Corcan is a, it's a publicly owned yep. company? Okay. Yeah. It's run by the Public Safety Ministry. Cool. Okay. What, what are some examples of uh, the manufacturers that come from prison labor in Canada? Yeah, so manufacturing in particular, there's a lot of furniture produced. And then the other main kind of manufacturing, you know, so furniture desks, chairs, different kinds of office furniture. And then also there's been some, I guess, small in the scheme of things, but contracts with the Canadian Armed Forces to do things like vehicle, what do you call it? Like refurbishment. Right. Okay. So like armored personnel carriers and trucks and stuff like that. So in Marx's theory, the idea is that the laborer doesn't get the full value of their labor because they don't own the means of labor. For some reason, I would assume in the prison context... Uh, that margin is much lower for the prison laborer than the than the non-prison laborer. Yeah, so in uh, federal prison, <clears throat> wages max out at $6.90. That's a day or? Uh, per day. Per, per day. day. And that is before uh, room and board and various kind of fees are taken off. Wow. So just to be clear then, these people who would be working, are they in the federal prisons then? They're not in the provincial stream? So I've only been talking about federal prisons okay, so far. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the case there. And then in provincial prisons, there's much less industry. But Ontario has a program called Trillcore, which uh, makes textiles and does like linens and also stamps license plates in the very old school image of prison labor. So... Ontario license plates are made in prison. Wow. And then BC also has prison industry program, which is like most notable for its use of prisoner firefighters. So if people kind of follow some of the California firefighter stuff, there's been controversies that comes up in the media every kind of fire uh, season that like, oh, a bunch of these firefighters are prisoners. So we've been talking a little bit about the, the, the public administration of prisons, so to speak, but... You also note that um, prisoner resistance in Canada stretches back to pre-Confederation. What have been some of the notable instances of this, and and um, usually in in what kind of context? What were the, the what was the resistance focusing on? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's like a wide range of ways that prisoners resist. If someone is subjugated in the way that they are to be imprisoned, we should expect that there will be resistance. And so, you know, obviously there's all the individualized forms of that escape, hostage takings. And then there's different kinds of collective action, right? Riots, strikes, attempts to form unions, you know, other things like different kinds of protests, trying to establish things like inmate committees Mm -hmm. to have some sort of representation. So yeah, so there's like a wide range of things that people have engaged with over time. And because of my interests and because of the way that the prison strike this year has been framed around prison labor, you know, in that article, I mostly go into these examples around 
labor, but, but prisoners have organized around all sorts of other things too, you know, generally around bad conditions, around things like visitation, access to parole, you know, forced transfers, bad food, you name it, people, people have organized to try to improve those things. And you mentioned in your article a few examples of where these strikes and these organizing efforts have gotten pretty violent as well. Yeah, definitely. As I mean, a result of fighting for... Yeah, I mean, prison riots are often deadly things, and this is always the threat of any kind of collective action in prison is, you know, will this escalate into a riot and what are the consequences of that? I talked to prisoners who were involved in the 2013 uh, work stoppage mm-hmm. that I talk about in the article in Canada, and, you know, a thing that came up repeatedly was the desire to not have this escalate yeah. into a riot because, you know, people had either lived through the really tumultuous days of the 70s where lots of people died in riots mm-hmm. uh, or knew enough about it that they didn't, they didn't want that. And, you know, the Burnside prisoner statement also really emphasizes this desire for tactical or strategic orientation towards nonviolence, like partially for exactly this reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, really unfortunate thing with the Burnside case is that after the protests ended, after 20 days, in the statement that the prisoners released, they said, you know, right after the strike ended, another person in here committed suicide. And so, you know, the loss of life, you know, violence interpersonal between prisoners, but also between guards and prisoners, and then obviously different kinds of self-harm and suicide is just a daily, you know, it's a factor of life for people in prison. I think when we think of prisoners, we think they're very uneducated, just like brutes. But, you know, reading about the strikes and listening to you now, it seems like people are, are very reflective and like they've, they're just like anyone else, I guess. Yeah, I would say prisoners are like everyone else in one sense in that we're all human beings and we all have a range of experiences. But prisoners also come from disproportionately, right. you know, marginalized backgrounds and have faced different kinds of oppression and poverty being overwhelming. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about the racial disparity Mm -hmm. in prison, which is good and right. You know, in Canada, people have talked about prisons as the new new residential schools, given the fact that there's just such a massive overrepresentation of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I think you said about uh, almost a quarter, just over a quarter of yeah, uh, people in prisons and are First Nation. And then you know, federal uh, women prison population is even worse. It's like 40% of And uh, youth incarceration rates are even worse. And you get to the provincial levels, especially in the West, it becomes even more stark. Right. So, yeah, we're talking about locking up a lot of indigenous people. And then also, you know, black Canadians are overrepresented. Right. Immigrants of different kinds are overrepresented. But also, yeah, like prisoners also to a person almost are poor and have, you know, vastly disproportionate issues with mental health and experience abuse and trauma. And I think one thing that is important to point out, kind of following up with what Asiya was saying, is that we often have, and the government in particular, likes to make a rigid division between who is an offender and who is a victim. But if we just scratch the surface of that even a tiny bit, it really falls apart. Like 70% of women in federal custody have a history of sexual abuse and something like 86% have a history of physical abuse. So this idea that, you know, 
their offenders and their victims is really much more complicated in real life. And to say, mm-hmm. oh, because one's in prison, your overwhelming identity is as an offender, which is what the government calls them, you know, it's stupid. Yeah. In the American media, the, uh, what is that called when you, resort prisons is an expression. I just, um, in doing research for this, I came across an expression in French that went something like, uh, voler un poulet, incarcéré, voler un, un bœuf, uh, au Chateau de Bourbon. So, so you, you steal a chicken incarcerated. If you steal a, a, a bull, you go to the palace. Right. Um, but, like, but, but there is I, this I discrepancy, think, yeah. it seems like, as well as to say in the yeah, prison Yeah, that's an important point, which is we spend a lot of time focusing on who is in prison, rightly so. But also we need to be looking at who's not. Yeah. You know, the ruling class doesn't really go to prison. <laughs> and... You know, the way, you know, the media structures these things is like when someone does, we fucking know. Martha Stewart, Bernie Madoff, like, you know, the names of the people. Yeah. Conrad Black. (laughs) But like, it is not the people who are polluting the environment. It's we know all too well now, like, it's not the police who are shooting people. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the people who get to make the rules, Mm -hmm. uh, even if they break them, who go. So you also uh, quote um, Canadian prisoners' rights activist Claire uh, Colhane, who puts it quite nicely, we can't change prisons without changing society. What does this mean, though, really? Like, how do we... What's pointing in the right direction? I'm hearing prisons are bad. Yes. At the same time, I don't think we can just, like, let all these, like, you know... Sure. Criminals out in the wilds, right? Yes. Like, you know, so how do we... You know, what's the alternative? Like, what, do we, what should we do instead of imprisoning our criminals? Right. So, I mean, on the one hand, I think you actually could let the vast majority of people out of prison and it would make zero difference because what (laughs) prison is doing, right? Crime exists in society. Crime exists in prison. We put certain people in prison, like I said, and not other people. Mm -hmm. You know, if we did stop and frisk of, you know, white men on Bay Street, Mm -hmm. you could charge a lot of people with drug possession. Right. But our society is set up so that the people who are being stopped and searched and harassed by the police are not those people. Mm. And so, yeah, on the one hand, you could let out lots of people today, yesterday, okay. and I think it would not really matter. Oh, okay. It would make no no real discernible difference except more people would get to be with their friends and family. But yeah, I mean, I think people talk lots about the you know potential of things like restorative justice, which I think is good. There's different forms of that, you know, things like native healing circles. Can you define what restorative justice is? Yeah, so restorative justice is like part of kind of alternative sentencing that puts an emphasis on reconciliation or repairing of harm. And so often what that looks like is a victim and an offender get together with other people mm-hmm. in a structured way where the victim has an opportunity to talk about what the offense means to them and how it affected them and the offender gets to take responsibility for that uh, and hopefully come to some sort of place where a agreement can be worked out about what an appropriate response to that is. Um, I think there was a case recently in the news about someone, an Aboriginal person who 
murdered a child and who's now in a healing lodge. It's, I was reading an editorial actually in the Globe. Right. But how there's no way a child killer should be in a healing lodge. Yeah. So what do you think of that? I mean, obviously people, you know, child killing is a very terrible thing and people have strong feelings about it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there's any kind of justice being served yeah. by a person being denied access to spiritual services or anything else is just unfortunate you know it's just not right yeah i guess it's not going to really change what happened right and like i think that we have this idea that we that justice is about punishment but justice doesn't have to be about that it can be about how do we as a society move forward you know definitely and like i think that there can be a place for punishment in some circumstances but it should be done humanely. And to you know Patrick's point, I think what gets lost in a lot of the discussion of crime and justice is the fact that we live, like Claire Calhoun said, in an unjust society. Mm-hmm. And not that we could wave a wand and make crime disappear, but we could structure our society in a way at least where people's needs are met to some degree and where things like trauma are dealt with in a way that isn't just punishment, mm-hmm. but actually, you know, offer people the things that they need in order to, you know, work through those things. Mm-hmm. Broadly speaking, I think there's a, an idea that exists saying the punishment should fit the crime. And I'm sort of, I'm hearing you kind of push back against that a little bit. I'm, think, I'm hearing you saying there's, an, there's another way of looking at this. Is that right? Yeah, and I mean, like, so I don't have all the solutions about how to solve crime in society, but I think with with your question, should the does the punishment fit the crime? I think what we should be focused with at this moment is not so much about balancing whether the punishment fits the crime, but being much more concerned about who gets to define the crimes and who gets to pursue the punishment and for what reasons. Mm-hmm. Well... Thank you so much for joining us, Jordan. Thank you. That was very illuminating. That was a really interesting uh, discussion on the history and background of prisons in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I think I was just really impressed with the ways in which prisoners are organizing themselves. The um, clarity Jordan uh, lent in terms of prison labor was also insightful in terms of where the products go that are made. Of course, they are apparently used for government agencies who will use desks, cabinets, shelves, etc. that were uh, made by prison labor. What do you think of that? Well, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny that the, the little cubicles and the chairs in which office workers find their own prison are created by prisoners, prisoners themselves. Um, for my Canadian politics course, I just had to read the Canada Act. And, you know, the Constitution starts with these lofty ideals towards individual rights and liberties, etc. And, you know, the, the bureaucracies that supposedly protect and deploy these rights are furnished with the products of prison labor. It's a bit ironic, to say the least. 
Thank you for listening to the best breakfast themed podcast, Oats for Breakfast. Remember, you can have oats any time of the day by going to www.patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Where you can eat oats and also support us in growing the podcast. We have a lot of different things we like to do. So if you're so inclined, please jump on over and make us a $5 pledge. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast and the Socialist Project, you can visit socialistproject.ca. We're also, if you like steel cut oats or rolled oats or any kinds of other oats for breakfast, we're looking forward to hearing from you. You can email us at uh, podcast at socialistproject.ca. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.